0: Welcome again to another episode of Moments That Rock. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis. We're here every week with 15 to 20-minute segments. And if there's any more from the said interviewee, then we push it back to a few weeks. Today, I'm delighted to have an old friend and colleague, a band I worked with in the early 80s called The Alarm. And especially their leader, Mike Peters, who is a good friend. Years go by, but all of a sudden you pick up the phone, talk to these guys, and it's like they never left. Mike's had an illustrious career, had a lot of setbacks in his time. He'll tell you about them. Um, and he's, uh, well, what you'd call in modern day terms, a courageous leader. He's got some great stories, some amazing experiences. And we split this up into several episodes. So without further ado, I'll introduce you to let you hear him introduce himself. Good day. I'm Mike
1: Peters. The singer of a rock band called The Alarm from Wales in the UK. I have been the said singer since 1981, but also a life in music before that through punk, mod, everything else that was going on in the UK at the time. And uh, been at the creative centre of The Alarm's music since for 14 odd years. Uh, I'm still here, we've got a new album out called Forwards, uh, I'm a cancer survivor, run a global charity called Love, Hope and Strength and we just hiked the Alps and uh, I was speaking at a World Cancer Leaders Summit in Los Angeles in the coming weeks, so here I am, Mike Peters from the Alarm, Love, Hope, Strength, ready to
0: talk. I do have the strength... Backstage tour past there, oh, yeah. back in the day. So we go back 42 years, Mr. Peters, my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Without amazing. sounding like
0: two old blokes talking. Um, just go back to, to, to. I mean, I know the earliest names of your bands. You know, Actually, if I'd have known you then, I would have given you a better name than the Toilets. The,
1: the, the Toilets was uh, came as a, a flash of inspiration in a pub called the Victoria Hotel in Pristatin. And uh, I was having a pint with the bass player. and I need to go to the bathroom and saw the sign, thought, that's it. We're going to be called The Toilets. And this was 1977. I'd just seen the Sex Pistols in 76 at the Quaint Ways in Chester before the, the Fuhrer all broke out. And uh saw an incredible band that changed my life. And and here I am, starting a punk band, trying to persuade people who've never heard of punk and don't know what it is to to be in a band. Um, and then we we got a few gigs straight away. We... we we were actually probably pretty good, much better than we realised. Uh, we had a great singer from Coleraine in Northern Ireland, a singer called O'Malley, who was a proper character. And I met him in a, a bar in Rill. I, I was supposed to have another lead singer. He never got off the bus. It's a proper transition moment. And then there was no phones to get hold of people and say, where are you? So I, I carried on with the night out and uh, Pretty Vacant was playing on 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 the DJ. Uh, on the dance floor and I saw this guy Poe going higher than anyone else in the middle of the, the floor and I went up to him and asked him if he wanted to be the singer of the band and he said yeah and he was an uh, amazing character and uh, I, I went to um, Liverpool to Eric's club which is in Matthew Street where the opposite where the Cavern was where the Beatles started out and uh, I'd heard that you could have a Saturday afternoon audition gig there and so uh, I went up one Saturday and and just to it was before opening time and I knocked on the window and, and the guy put up the shutter and it turned out it was a guy called Roger Eagle, who is was a very famous uh, northern soul DJ, entrepreneur, He'd run the Twisted Wheel in Manchester. And here he was in a punk club in Liverpool. And uh, and I said, oh, I've come to try and get a, a Saturday afternoon audition for my band. We're from Wales. He says, oh, I haven't seen any punk bands from Wales yet. He goes, what are you called? And I went, we're called the Toilets. he went, that's a terrible name. You you can't play here with a name like that. I said, he said, what's your name? And I said, well, you must have a stage name. And I said, it's Eddie Bop." And he goes, well, if you call yourselves that, you can play next Saturday. So we did. And uh, and we turned up a week later. And as I said that, he said, uh, I said, oh, thanks very much. We'll come back next Saturday. And he, he started putting a poster up in the window. And it was, it said, Secret gig, the Clash next Saturday. So I actually bought a ticket off him there and then. So I got ticket number one, uh, which I still have to see the gig because we we played the following Saturday and uh, we went on stage and we just ripped the venue to bits. It was we were and the singer was incredible. He could hold the audience in the palm of his hand and um, and as we put the cord, the last chord down, Bob Geldof jumped on the stage and shook my hand and said that was amazing because. The Boomtown Rats had played the night before. And uh, and then Roger Eagle bounded on the stage and said, do you want to play with The Clash tonight? And I was like, what? And I couldn't believe it. And uh, so that's that's why I've still got ticket number one, because I didn't have to give him a ticket in, because we played with The Clash that night. And again, it was incredible. And there was another Northern Soul DJ up, at Eric's at the time, a guy called Chris Harrop, and he was from Baghilt near Flint in in North Wales. And he came on the stage. He goes, "I want to be your manager and take you to London." And uh, he he hooked us up with another famous Northern Soul guy, a guy called A.D. Crowsdale, who, who runs all the Kent Records Northern Soul reissues, and he's probably the you know one of the foremost Soul uh, record collectors in in Britain. And uh, he he let us stay in his flat around the corner from BBC. And he, he, they helped us get a gig in, in the um, Roxy in the Covent Garden in London. And uh, they took us out for a pint, a first pint in a pub in London. Um, and before I knew it, I looked around, and thought, where's O'Malley the singer gone the next? I could, there was these things called blues going around. <laughs> I think he did a whole bag full of them and was climbing up the walls. And it, it became a bit scary at that moment and uh, sort of, Frightened me a little bit, to be honest, that, that the dark side of rock and roll could come into your life that quickly. We hadn't even started. And um, that, that was sort of really the beginning of the alarm, to be honest, because we, we, we got Nigel Twist, or Nigel Buckle, as he was called at the time, to become the drummer. Although he didn't really like punk rock like we did, he was he was still a hippie with loons. I used to have to make him wear tight trousers to go on stage and all sorts of things. <laughs> but yeah, heady times. Been it, but it was formative. And uh, we went. We didn't have what other bands had. When I looked around at the Sex Pistols, I had Malcolm McLaren and the Clash had Bernie Rhodes or or um, the Buzzcocks, who I loved, had had Richard Boone. They had they, all, they had someone older in their camp. You could help them direct the energy and channel it um, and we we didn't have that we were just straight out of real and uh, we, we had no idea we didn't even know whether our songs were any good we were just playing off instinct things I'd learned to be a well I hadn't even learned to be a songwriter I just wrote these two minute blasts of music based on what I was hearing and writing about what I could See in front of me, and 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 then I realised when we got in front of an audience, we we're actually a really good band with it. And I said, Amali died in in two thousand three, and he, he sort of fell foul to drugs in his life, and uh, that took his energy away and his his talent because he was incredible. Like I often think back and think, what well, if he'd been straighter and more channeled it and could have focused his energy better? Maybe with someone older around him who could, you know steer him in the right direction i often want what we could have become as a band from that point onwards without me having to become the singer and learn how to do all the other things that you have to do to create a band but uh it was like we were lucky we, we started off great we played with the Buzzcocks. we played with the fall we played loads of gigs in the northwest in, in the punk scene but we just didn't we fell away because we did, never got to make a demo or a record uh, so was until this much late like 70s mate. Yeah, 77 into 78. Yeah. And uh, we are the bass player. He, he had a girlfriend called Sarah Sugarman, and she went on to become a big film director in Hollywood and doing things with Lindsay Lohan and Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, and still making big movies now. And um, in 2004, The Alarm did a sort of punk rock swoop on the music industry, and we created a fake band called the Poppy Fields we were all now in our 40s um and we we pressed the record a, a, up and presented it to people as the poppy fields and the, the industry fell for it and they started a-listing the song and inviting a, this young 19 year old band to be on mtv 120 minutes and i i was portraying myself as the manager and saying oh they're, they're doing their exams they can't possibly come on tv just yet <laughs> and uh And then the record became a big hit, and it was the biggest thing that had happened to us since 68 Guns in the 80s, 80s. Um, um, And when when the news of the subterfuge broke and that that this young band were really the alarm who were in their 40s in disguise, it became a gigantic news story and, and got picked up by John H. Williams, who was the producer of the Shrek movies. And he invited me to his production office in Hollywood, and I went, and he said, we want to make a film based on... 45 RPM poppy field story and he said to me um oh, I've got this uh, amazing director in mind you won't know but she's having hit movies at the moment her name's Sarah Sugarman I went well you'll never believe this but I went to school with her and she went out with the bass player of our punk band The Toilets and and when I met her with Sarah she couldn't believe it either that that you know serendipity had brought us to this moment and uh, she said, OK, I'm going to make the film. It's going to be called Vinyl. We're going to have Phil Daniels, the actor in it, and uh, Keith Allen's going to be in it, and all these great Perry Benson, Brit- Brit- British, great British cast who've been in some Brit- brilliant films in, in uh, that were British-based. And, uh, and then she said, I want the soundtrack to be all those songs you, you wrote for the toilets back in 1977. So um, I had one surviving tape of the toilets, and I took that to the studio, and... Copied the tempos and and the speed of the song, so it was pretty authentic. And even recorded them with the same guitar I had from 1977. And uh, we got Phil Daniels involved in the music as the sort. He did quite a lot of the uh, O'Malley parts. And uh, and it was and it's a really the soundtrack vinyl is a really great representation of what the toilet sounded like in 1977.
0: You're listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. And today's guest is Mike Peters, the leader f- of the Alarm, telling you stories about the early days of the Alarm. And we'll be back right after this.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
0: To quote a rock and roll term, you've worked your asses off and everything. You were kind of right place at the right time, but then again, you wouldn't automatically think Wales was the right place. But you always went back and you never left. You didn't. I mean, even the Beatles couldn't wait to move to London and stuff, could they? <laughs> you always
1: kept your yeah, roots. But, well, well in, in Wales, we have a, a, a thing called Hirith, and it's uh, Hirith is an unpronous- an, a, an a, untranslatable word because it's it's a feeling rather than something. Uh, specific and and it re- the closest we can get to describing it is it's like every Welsh person who has the Hirith is is tied to Wales like an umbilical cord. It means you, you can never really leave Wales because the the Hirith is always calling and it, it's like a it's always elastic band that's pulling you back home. And uh, we're we're not like the Irish. I think that that get they they invade everywhere and take over and they they, they set up bars and cal- enclaves and. Live there with we, the Wales. We go to these places, but we always come home. We don't leave our mark behind. And uh, they always say that the the difference between uh, Wales and Ireland, or the Welsh and the Irish, that uh, when the Romans invaded Britain, the 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 Irish are the are the Welsh people that could swim to get away from the from the Romans, <laughs> and the Welsh are the ones that couldn't swim, and so we just stayed stayed behind and dug in and held on to our
0: turf. <laughs> So, really, it wasn't just the, the time and punk and everything that was your inspiration. It was actually your your, your surroundings as well. I mean, you know, obviously you were energised from <coughs> being where you wanted to be, not where people probably insisted. You've only really had management in the early days, haven't you? You look after yourself now.
1: Yeah, we, we've always looked after ourselves. You know, for, I think that, again, it's a um, it's strength and a weakness. You know, when we started the toilets... We didn't have a Sven Gali around us to direct us, so I had to go knock on doors and find our gigs and uh, that kind of thing. And even when we moved to London, it was in 1981. We, we'd had two. We the, had the bands, the Toilets, that morphed into Seventeen as a more of a mod power pop band, which is maybe to uh, what, what we were really leaning towards melodically. And um, and and uh, it was when we started the alarm we i just thought we we managed to this is how uh, how how the alarm started in a way we 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 uh, we were in a band called 17 and we'd seen a band from america called the stray cats uh buy airline tickets and just come to london to try and make it and they did and they were the hottest thing in in the world at the time and then we we did what The Alarm did in, in, 19, in 2004, we did it in 1980. We pretended to be a support band to get a gig with the Stray Cats. And we did, I phoned up the band that, that was supporting them, asked if we could use their drum kit. I, I phoned the venue and said the Stray Cats had been to Sears and wanted to be one of the opening acts if we could use the support band's drum kit. And they said, yeah, okay, if the Stray Cats want it, that's what's going to happen. And we got as far as to jumping up on the equipment with our guitars before the Stray Cats manager realised that there was another band that he didn't know anything about about to play with his group in Crystal Palace. And uh, <laughs> as he was about to kick us off the stage, Slim Jim Phantom, the drummer, comes out and goes, let them play, they've got this far. What, what, what can 20 minutes, what harm can an extra 20 minutes do? No, and nice. uh, so they let us, they let us play. Uh, we, we got talking to them and we realised we had something in common. None of us were from London. We were from Wales, they were from America. They'd taken a big risk coming to London and it had worked for them. And they invited us back to, they were recording at a place called Jam Studios with Dave Edmonds, who happened to be from Wales. The great guitarist, James, uh, Dave Edmonds. And when we got to the studio, we, got, we all got on fantastically well. And we, we sat in the room while they recorded Runaway Boys, Rock This Town, all with Dave Edmonds. We sat watched it all going down. And then they invited us on tour with them. And, and that was our breeding ground for the alarm. We learned everything where we were going wrong and we channeled it ourselves, you know, into, we didn't have anyone mold us. We just channeled it into ourselves and, and Gaz, our old roadie, who became a TV presenter, he, he always said, um, he said, I I sat everyone down one day after the Stray Cats tour and said, right, we're going to remake ourselves. We're going to remodel ourselves. To quote Roxy Music as the, as the, um, the, as the alarm, we're going to be a new entity now. And, and I, had a list and and my list was like, something like we're gonna make a single, move to London, get some gigs, find a manager, find an agent, go on tour, get a record deal, make an album, get on top of the Pops, and then we're gonna go to America. And Gaz said, we did everything. The only one thing he got wrong was we went to America before we went on tour in the UK. (laughs) Before we got on top of the Pops, yeah. How did that? That's what... We 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 got we got lucky in 1981. We we moved to London with our own single. We had our own flat. We we've got. There was a guy called um, Louis Parker who'd come from Rill. He was um, he was a bit of a, a a very interesting character in the 70s, and he used to book bands into North Wales, and he used to book them onto the Colwyn Bay pier, and he'd have things like. Jackie Wilson, The Tramps, lot lot of soul bands that were sort of associated with northern soul, and he also opened a nightclub in a, a hotel in Saint Tassaf called the Tullardi, and uh, the, the the nightclub was called the Stables, and it, it was one of the first clubs in Britain to be uh, modelled on American sort of mo- uh, guidelines. So he wouldn't let anyone in who was wasn't under was. Everyone had to be over twenty-one to get in this club, which was unusual in nineteen seventy Britain, where you could be eighteen to get in everywhere. And uh, and what he used because he owned a hotel and he he'd had all these bands play on Colwyn Bay Pier and then they would stay at the hotel, but they'd have to do a second performance at midnight in his trendy nightclub called the stables So obviously, as a, I would go there and I saw I saw Jackie Wilson singing there, I saw the Tramps playing, I saw the Shy Lights, all these kind of American soul bands up close and personal. It was pretty amazing. And then Louis um, moved into the wider music sphere. Uh, He he booked us one gig playing with the Slits in 1977 in St. Hasseff, which we did. And then he moved to London himself uh, and set up an agency called the Concord Music Agency. And he'd been booking bands like Shack Attack, all these sort of disco bands, and um, he, when we got to London in 1981, I called him and asked him if he could try and get, help us get a gig. And he said, the only band I'm representing that, any, that might have anything to do with the alarm is The Fall with Mark e. Smith. And he said, I can get you the gig with them, possibly at the venue in Victoria in London. But he said, the, the, they choose the support band. So I'm going to give you their manager, Kay Carroll. I'm going to give you her phone number and you're going to have to phone her yourself and say Louise asked if you, you know you could play with the Fall, so I, I called her from a payphone and said, "Oh, you know, can we have this gig with the Fall?" And she said to me, "Well, you, do you sound anything like the Fall?" So I thought to myself, "Well, shall I lie and say yeah, we sound just like the Fall, or should I be honest and say no, we don't sound anything you don't like?" Really the fall. like the Fall. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> so I thought I might as well be honest. I said, "No, we don't sound anything like the Fall." And she said, "Thank God for that. We hate bands that
0: sound like the Fall." You can have a gig. It's true, nobody sounds like the fall. You've been listening to Moments That Rock. Uh, I'm your host, Tony Michael Lewis, but you've been listening especially to Mr Mike Peters from The Alarm in part one of his wonderful story, which makes it the end of today's episode. Come back, subscribe, and we'll see you next week with more Moments That Rock.